Thank you for listening to Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body. This is episode 47, Rachel Jacobs, Collectively Moving Toward Justice, recorded October 14th, 2021. About irrevocability Let's burn some bridges Earn some stitches And fight our own way free Cause the rules don't lie But they don't apply To people like you and me Let's start it up now 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 Now they say it's all decided All divided, all laid out and the pushcart man with a three-part plan can't understand what you're shouting about. But when the past they plow, the lives allowed are the only roads you can see. Just remember who walls were built to fall for old people like you and me. Let's start it up now. 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 Hey, hey, TA audience. Welcome to Teaching RSU Podcast. This podcast is researched, recorded, and produced on the unceded lands, water, and air, stewarded by the Canarsie and Munsee Lenape peoples in what is currently known as Brooklyn, New York. Thanks for listening, and thanks for being a part of our global community. Invite your peeps, colleagues, and friends to join our community and subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and now we're on Spotify. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And head over to teachingrsv.org to check out the redesigned, more user-friendly look and access episodes, bios, our video series, merchandise, and much, much more. I like to travel. Uh, and yeah, I've, been, I've talked about this before. I've been pretty fortunate to be able to travel domestically during the pandemic safely. Um, but I have surely, gosh, I've really missed international travel and experiencing other parts of the world, um, you know, physically in the last two years. And so I was truly honored to have been asked by Jeff Poulin, who is the managing director of Creative Generation, to moderate a live discussion as part of their World Alliance of Arts Education Conference, which is an international conference. And Creative Generation has been a partner of the podcast over the years. So of course I said yes. And when I do live podcast recordings, I usually have a set of questions and, and you know, generally that's my, that's my MO as a host, but I try to stay very in the moment, especially if it's in front of a live audience. Um, but in general, and then you can sometimes hear me adjusting my line of questioning so that I am truly being as responsive as possible to the guest. And so, um, yeah, this month, uh, Rachel Jacobs was, uh, is our guest. And when I was speaking with Rachel Jacobs, who is a creative justice artist, the conversation re-sparked something in me. Um, yeah, she reminded me of how important it is for me to engage with others from other parts of the world, one. <laughs> and she, wow, she's really, really remarkable, truly amazing. Uh, I really... Honestly, I, can't, I cannot imagine that she even knows how 
much she has impacted my thinking just as this one conversation and then doing my research in advance. Um, she sort of, I don't know, just clicked, uh, clicked something that might have just been on pause for a sec um, in terms of thinking, thinking about, you know, different ways to approach my, both the work that I do in my institution, but also in terms of change making within the teaching artistry field and what my role in supporting that change could be. Um, yeah, during the conversation, there just seems to be this energy of urgency and electricity when, when she talks about the bigger global picture and how artists can be um, able to, you know, have ongoing activism and disrupting structural oppressions, creative justice, and how to uplift the work that we do on the micro level to rethink the the macro systems. Um, So I'm excited for you to hear this conversation. Join me, will you? (laughs) Um, So here is the live conversation with Rachel Jacobs, episode 47, Collectively Moving Toward Justice. My name is Courtney J. Body, she, her. I'm vice president uh, of education and school engagement at the New 42 and New Victory. And the mission of this organization is to make extraordinary performing arts a vital part of everyone's life from the earliest years onwards. I'm also the uh, creator and host of Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body podcast, which celebrates artists, culture, and equity. I am a black cisgendered woman with light complected skin, a strawberry sort of ombre blonde hair, naturally curly, pulled back in a messy bun with pink opaque framed glasses and a turquoise um, textured frilly, let's say frilly uh, top with a cream wall background um, behind me. I am joining from the Stolen Lands, Water, and Air, stewarded by the Muncie Lenape and Canarsie Nations in what is currently known as Brooklyn, New York, part of Lenape Hoking, the homeland of the Lenape people. These lands are intertribal trade lands under the stewardship of the Lenape, Merrick, Canarsie, Rockaway and Matinecock nations. I celebrate and pay deep respect to the the peoples of these nations and other indigenous nations throughout North America and black communities across the African diaspora, their cultures, their communities, their elders past and present, those with us today and all future generations. I am incredibly excited to have this conversation with Rachel Jacobs. Uh, Dr. Rachel Jacobs um, is a lecturer in creative arts education at Western Sydney, an arts activist and community artist. Uh, She conducts research on arts for social change, decolonized approaches to embodied learning, and much, much more. I'm just scratching the surface to learn more about you, Rachel. So I'm really looking forward to learning more about your work. Um, I'm just going to name a little few more things that that are in your bio that I am really excited about. Um, uh, The fact that you've been a consultant for the OECD in um, the development of the Sustainable Development Goals and to UNESCO's International Commission on Futures of Learning. 
also you're an artist, a freelance writer, an aerial artist, a South Asian dancer, and you have your own um, uh, intercultural dance company. I mean, what don't you do is a question I have. <laughs> um, so do you want to um, introduce yourself before we get into our conversation? For sure. That's really kind. Thank you. I could ask exactly the same thing of you, Courtney J. Body. You are such a legend uh, in the fields that I am in. But thank you so much for having me. I'm Rachel Jacobs, she, her pronouns. And I am wearing a black spotted uh, dress with a black cardigan on top. I have my hair, which is dyed red in a bun. I'm wearing headphones and my Zoom background is an artwork which has people doing all kinds of different learning activities from gymnastics to painting to um, working with devices. Uh, and I'm coming to you from Gadigal land in the Eora Nation. I thank the elders past, present and emerging. Sovereignty was never ceded. And today I'm sure we're going to have a lot of conversations about a lot of justice issues. And here on Gadigal land, uh, justice begins with racial justice and racial justice begins with First Nations justice. So I acknowledge any First Nations people who are listening to us today. I thank them for their custodianship of the land and um, enduring resistance as well. Um, so thank you so much for having me. I'm deeply humbled to be here. So I, I, as I was sort of scrolling through the World Alliance for Arts Education Conference, your name just kept popping up here and popping up there. And the conversations that you've had with your colleagues um, have been really impactful for me. So I just want to first start off by saying somebody uses uh, somebody who's coming up in a podcast episode, Tina Lapadula talked about how this work is the warrior work. And I was like, this, that's who Rachel is. She's a warrior in this work. And I want to, I want to be close to that <laughs> because I want to understand um, what drives us to do this work and then how, you know, it's sort of the inner workings of how to do this work in a intentional way um, that is not only filling um, something that is deep within ourselves, but actually impacting deep change. Um, so let's let's actually uh, talk about a particular project that you've been working on. Um, I'd love for you to talk about the Chill the Heat, um, the Climate Collective project that you shared with me. And I, I've just, again, scratched the surface. So I'm curious about what the project is, how you embarked on it, um, and uh, how has the work evolved over time? Yeah, thanks for starting with one of my favorite projects that I'm working on, Courtney, and um, and for using the word warrior in the same sentence because that's pretty much something I aspire to being, and to being a um, to be a climate warrior as well. So there's actually a bit of a long history with this. I'll keep it short, I promise. But when I started getting involved in activism and politics and um, arts activism as well, I very much got involved for social justice, um, for social justice aims. So particularly here in Australia, First Nations justice, um, justice for refugees. Um, I'm a migrant myself, I'm an Indian Australian. Um, so for me, it was very much centered on racial justice as well as other different types of justice. Um, climate and the environment I knew was critically important 
But I'll be honest, I sort of left it to other people. I, I thought that, oh, they're environmentalists to do that work. They're people who've really devoted their life to that. And that's really fantastic. As the climate crisis has deepened, I've started to see the intersection of these things. I've started to see that climate justice is intrinsically tied with First Nations justice, that, that environmental degradation in Australia began in 1788. It was kept, this land has been kept sustainably for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, and it has only taken um, less than 250 for us to fuck it up. So, and that intersects with racial justice, which intersects with social justice. And here we are with, with the Chill the Heat project. So in, uh, in southwestern and western Sydney, which is the place uh, where I teach at Western Sydney University, ground temperatures regularly get up to 45 degrees in summer. That's a normal hot day. It's pretty much unlivable or it's getting to a stage where it is unlivable. People are unable to get to work. Um, children can't go outside to play at school. There's a lack of vegetation and things like that. And here's where it intersects with social justice is that these are also some of the poorest and most marginalised places in Australia. They have a lot of vulnerable populations. So, of course, climate change affects the most vulnerable pe people first. So I'm working with artists in the region to make artworks about the lived experience of um, heat and thank you very much for the reminder I need to be talking in Fahrenheit as well 113 degrees Fahrenheit is a regular day um, there's no um, body of water there that you can access apart from public swimming pools which are not accessible to everyone so um, so yeah tough times um, so we're making artworks that show talk about the lived experience of heat that's in slam poetry in dance in drama works there's visual artworks we're working with everybody from early learning centers to age commu care communities to refugee communities to make this work really come alive and we're going to have a festival where people come on board and look at these artworks but if you go to the festival it is your responsibility to respond to it to say what you are going to do not just as um, a person but as a company a structure an organization to address rising temperatures uh, we are inviting policymakers, politicians business owners um, because that's where we can affect the most change um, who have to give a commitment to what are you doing to address rising um, temperatures so that is a bit about um, chill the heat I appreciate what you said uh, to begin with that, uh, you know, I, I, I've, I've been an artist and I wasn't always, I was leaving sort of the, um, the justice or the action based um, uh, movements to others. And when you talked about the most vulnerable, vulnerable people being impacted hardest and like, and often first, um, that struck something for me that I was thinking well, then you also said something about how public pools aren't accessible to everybody. What's what? I don't understand that. Mm, mm. Public pools in Australia, we have a massive swimming culture here. I think that might be well known around the world. Public pools are really expensive. So it's about $7 to go to the pool, which is um, which is a, a lot. Imagine mm. you have a family with children or if you're a group of people or something like that, you might go and do something else with that money. You might not be able to get to the pool. Um, public transport is also notoriously expensive in Sydney as well. We have terrible public transport systems here. And when it's 45 degrees outside, 
113 Fahrenheit, these are all barriers to, to you getting to the pool. There's also cultural barriers about who is welcome at the pool, and this is where racial justice um, comes into it. Um, we have uh, a lot of Muslim populations in the western southwest of Sydney, and we need to do a lot more work to make sure that they feel accepted in public places, that different ways of dressing feel accepted. So there's actually so many barriers that are going along that in the end just results in people going, I'm actually just not going to go to the pool today. And it's it's extremely hot and being able to go to the pool would be well it could be community-based it could be you know on an individual level just like the idea of being able to play and have fun and be cool in some way um it, it feels natural to me especially in new york city where our public pools are in fact free um but i, I didn't mean to go down too that far down that line i am a swimmer so that's probably what pinged for me but it it, it was still tied to um, the inequities that you were talking about. So the other piece of the question that I have that I didn't ask before, but I'm asking now is um, in terms of the policymakers, in terms of the business owners, those who are coming or invited to the festival and, and asked to commit to some sort of action, what, what kind of response are you getting and what kind of action either has been hap happening or is starting to be promised? Yeah, there's, we haven't actually got to that stage of the, pro, of the project where we're inviting people in positions of power to come on board. We're still at the stage where we're building the artworks and we're building the response to things like um, heat. But just to go back to, to the swimming pools. So when we talk about powerful people, position people in powerful positions and what they could possibly do you know one of the things that they can do is to pay a living wage so um, there are people I met somebody on the weekend who's uber driving who works at a factory all day in southwest Sydney and then drives uber for about five hours a night and that is to make a a, a livable wage. Um, so that person has no luxury to go to the pool even if it was accessible um, so it's providing dignity in people's day-to-day -day existence so that they can do those things is essential to mitigating climate change and mitigating heat as well. But also what can companies and policymakers do to structurally um, take a turn towards climate justice, which is not about putting the onus on of responsibility onto the individual. Um, so I think we all know that we could recycle as much as we wanted for the rest of our lives, uh, but there are 71 companies, oh, sorry, there are 100 companies that make 71% of the world's emissions. And this is where we need to target climate justice, I think. Um, and that's what Chill the Heat is based on. The people of Southwest Sydney did not cause this problem. And they should not be responsible individually for fixing it. And that's what we want to activate as part of the festival is for people to raise their voices to say, we need you to take action. We need you to do better. And we need you to walk this back and solve it. So, okay, a couple of things that I'm, I'm hearing in, inside of that. And then I have a question. Um, if you're not you're not quite at the place of, of the invitation and the and the commitments, but you're understanding that um, uh, those in power are very good at deflecting that. Uh, 
change power <laughs> right like oh you have the power it's on it's turning it back on the individual as opposed to taking responsibility accountability for the choices that are made that are actually damaging to the environment and again going all the way back to the individual who's who's deeply impacted often are the most vulnerable and then turning it back around on them and saying you need to make the change why aren't you doing something um so that that is interesting to me i'm wondering if any of the art artistic processes are or sorry artistic components are working off of that struct uh, construct i guess I, I was gonna say metaphor but that's not right um yeah that construct of um you know there's there's uh there's a question I have around how do you invite those in power and compel them to invest in changing their ways to have a larger impact that isn't about their pockets without shaming them. <laughs> so, you know what I'm saying? Like it, it's, I, I wonder if there's conversation around that while these, um, art art projects are being made. And then, yeah, what are the conversations with those who are making the art and who's involved Somebody, that was a lot of questions. But they're all awesome questions. They're all fantastic questions because they're things I'm still working through at, at the moment and with the artists and with communities and the things that, that we don't have all the answers to, well, I certainly don't. What has emerged from working with communities is that people feel very strongly about their home in what they feel very tied to West and Southwestern Sydney. Um, it is not a matter of saying to people, well, if it's unlivable, why don't you move? Um, firstly, that's not feasible um, for a, a lot of people or for, for most people, but also they don't want to, that is, that is literally their home. There is a lot of pride in West and Southwest Sydney. And so rather than good point about not shaming people into action because that is just going to lock people down I, I believe it needs to be a hopeful conversation rather than us getting locked into our own corners saying you know those are disruptive people over there and I'm a good citizen just trying to have my business here what we want to tap into is the pride and that sense of place in western southwestern mm -hmm. communities so to say to businesses and policymakers to be a good citizen of western sydney is to take a sharp change towards climate justice, to look after each other, to build on the communal goodwill that we have, um, to look after people's um, sense of place, to, to keep it well, to keep it livable. And so being a model citizen in Southwest Sydney is to take active steps and to be a leader. And that, that way you can say, I am Southwest Sydney's champion. I am a company of the people, look what I am doing to reduce our carbon footprint, look what I am doing to reduce heat, look what I am doing to create more foliage. Um, that is going to be like the gold standard, uh, rather than look how many factories we built or, you know, look how much, how much exploitation we're doing. Um, mm -hmm. we, we sort of need to change what the gold standard is. Yeah, and so uh, do you have a sense of what the what the actual art projects are shaping up to be? Yeah, they're really amazing. So it's firstly, first and foremost, it, it does need to be First Nations led. So mm -hmm. we are beginning with all of the artists and myself and all of the organisers are going to uh, work with the Darug and the Darwal uh, traditional owners. We're working with their land council. Uh, we're 
hopefully going to have a tour of by the land council. I'm saying hopefully because uh, we've actually just come out of a, a very long lockdown, um, although not by world standards, probably we've just come to, out of a second lockdown from COVID. So everything's starting up again, uh, but it does need to be First Nations led because their knowledge is really paramount here. Um, so one of the projects is also designated for First Nations artist who is going to be doing environmental art and um, yeah, environmental art based on ancient preservation techniques. And she's going to be working with the schools. There's another group who's absolutely amazing called Bindi Bosses, close to my heart because I'm a South Asian. These are South Asian dancers and activists, and they are going to use their collective knowledge of some of the activism techniques that were used in India. Um, Courtney, did you know the term tree hugger actually originated in India? Um, th there were women um, who used to hug trees as a form of activism um, and, and embody themselves around them to stop the forests from being destroyed uh, during the colonization period. Uh, so they're working with that concept of the tree hugger. Yeah, uh, we have another artist doing environmental art in a early learning centre and there's going to be an exhibition at the end. We have a slam poet um, who's going to create a slam poetry session uh, where people are going to voice their lived experiences of heat and their desire for change. So these are a few yeah, I, th I think I've covered everything there. I mean, that that's amazing. I mean, when one uses the word collective, it's sometimes that um, because it's a term, you can't see it. But you, I think it's clear from what you just described how collective um, and how wide the possibilities are. Um, and, and I imagine also... Um, a lot of detail, a lot of time, a lot of, um, yeah, energy is poured into this. So how big is the actual organizing team? Oh, Courtney, it's massive. Uh, prepare yourself. Okay. Uh, it is me. Uh, it is, yep. it is myself. So <laughs> Is I received a small grant uh, from ITAC, which is the international. Oh, come on! Yes, the International uh, Teaching Artist Conference. Oh, <laughs> thank you so much! You're it's welcome. early in the morning, by the way. The International I'm here Teaching for you. Collective. I'm here for you. Thank you. Um, and a fantastic organization, but I did get a grant for them, them to do this work. So I'm working with an organization called Sweltering Cities. Sweltering Cities is an environmental. Um, organization that looks after the issue of surface temperatures on the ground. They're very much orientated towards environmental activism and also science. So they're really interested in how the arts can, um, can help. So I've got a lot of help. I've got a lot of help. I've got ITAC to draw upon. I've got sweltering cities, but the organizing team is me and the amazing artists. That's amazing. That's really it, this. This is actually connected to the uh, the next question because I'm thinking, OK, this is a really great example model of a, of a of a real project that's happening in real time and over the course of time. And it's still in, in, in a particular earlier early ish phase. Right. So how how like when is the. Yeah, when is the is the. Uh, I think I want to ask this question differently than what's in my head. <laughs> um, 
I was gonna, I was originally gonna ask, you know, what's the culmination seeing that it's grant funded or there is a grant as part of this, but really I think my, my lum, uh, perhaps a better question might be what are some of the, what are some of the hopes for the outcomes as more arts uh, engagement happens around this topic uh, around chill the heat and how, what are some of the ideas that you have for approaching when you get to that phase of starting to invite people, uh, people and entities in as participants in the festival. Yeah. Thanks. That, because that is, that is so important that I, the end of the festival will be uh, February, 2022, and mm -hmm. it's going to be so amazing, but um, you know, I actually know from some of your work, Courtney, it's really important that that work isn't just flash in the pan and, you know, gee, that was great. And then we all moved on. What I'm interested in is how the arts can influence the conversation around climate justice and the climate crisis. So my contention, and I've written uh, academically on this matter, is I believe that we have invested hard as uh, we have invested hard in the science of climate change. Um, and that has got us to a point. Uh, it has also enabled climate deniers and climate skeptics to say, look, I just don't believe that science. And suddenly we're at a stalemate. Mm. Whereas when we engage the arts and humanities, we are engaging, tapping into something that's inside of us, uh, tapping into moving away from the rational brain, the facts and the figures to something that moves us and hopefully moves us to the place of action. When people hear things like rising sea levels and a temperature rise of over four degrees, their head goes, that sounds bad to me. That sounds really bad. But I don't really understand what that means for day-to-day -day life. When you see uh, artwork of what the Great Barrier Reef is going to look like in 2050, it is not going to be there, that the modelling has been done. If we continue down this road, there will be no Great Barrier Reef. That is something that you, you cannot be moved from. There's been examples in history where uh, art has been used to change completely a conversation about, uh, about the environment and people's feelings towards the environment. And that's something I'd like, to, um, I'd like to kind of tap into is our actual humanity. So that's the bigger picture of what we're doing in this project. And hopefully um, ITAC has plans for how that wisdom can be shared internationally and how these can be used for examples of ongoing activism. Yeah. Yeah. So that is my, so that's where I was going, but I backtracked for a second so thank you for going along with my with my brain um but yeah I am curious about taking this particular project as a model and thinking about how it could be inspiring other types of community um collective action-based arts making so I'm curious from your perspective um you know it's I I am curious about what's driving you, but um, to co connect that to the question that I'm trying to ask <laughs> is how, how, what are what are some of the things that you think that artists, community-based artists, teaching artists could uh, need, could use whatever to feel empowered to, to do this more um, action-based 
work to make some sort of impactful change to be change makers essentially is what I'm saying, I guess how it, within, within any particular area it could be very specifically within the arts. Um, it could be within arts education, education, or any other sort of um, particular issue that impacts humans and the, their, their lives or the, or the dignity of how they live their lives. Yeah. What I would, uh, yeah, I, I absolutely pick up where you're going with this question and I love it. The problem is I don't have, I don't know if I have the answer yet. I'm still learning mm. myself. I'm still finding my way through this. So I think there's a few dimensions, which is that I personally, as an artist and a teaching artist, encourage my fellow artists to take that sharp turn towards justice. Um, there are a lot of beautiful arts projects going on that are about empowerment of the individual. And I have engaged in that work for years and years and years. I have done beautiful work um, with small communities or individuals, but in some ways that work has denied that there is a structural problem going on. And so I want to encourage artists to always think bigger, think about how their work works within the ecosystem. And look, we can't solve these problems alone. So working part of, as part of a collective um, is always preferable and tapping into other forms of knowledge as other ways of thinking. So that's something I want to do is broaden, broaden our thinking as an arts collective, I guess into how we can make structural change that moves from creativity towards creative justice. Creative justice is something that I've talked about uh, with my colleague, Michael Finneran at um, WAAE's uh, virtual conference. Um, so moving towards creative justice is where I'd like to see all artists getting on board and, and so many are already doing that. But the second thing is providing the space for that work to happen. And I'm really proud of ITAC for actually offering these grants and providing these space. There are five grants that were offered around the world. I think they've reached every continent. And um, providing that space is absolutely crucial because giving artists space to be like, this is for you to be activists. This is for you to be change makers. This is not for you to get out of the pattern of survival. This is funded um, because so many artists are just existing project to project or paycheck mm. to paycheck or not paycheck to paycheck. As it may seem, so many of our lives and industries have been destroyed after COVID particularly. So giving that space, I think is, is absolutely crucial. And I can probably talk a bit more about that at a later stage in the conversation about how we continue to exist. Um, as, far as, the, as artists, um, yeah. go for it. I, I for one it. of the things I'd like to do as part of work with the whole arts community on on creative justice mm. is to remove oh. remove capitalist funding structures from our work. So it is hard. That's a monumental task. I don't pretend that's going to happen quickly or easily or something like this, but the, the funding models that get us to compete with each other aren't necessarily hugely useful. I am an advocate of a basic income for the, for everyone. Um, I'm an advocate for a basic income um, here in Australia, but I actually think that it can be trialed with artists that trialing basic income 
with an arts community might set up a model of how we can do it. We get to know where the problems and challenges are. We also get to know what's possible because I think some incredible work could be possible if the basic income was available. So there's a few massive structural things that I think would be really helpful as well. Obviously they can't happen overnight, but they also can't happen if we don't start that journey. When you say removing the capitalist funding structures, I've been asking a lot of questions around how how to be an advocate for um, pay equity within the teaching artistry field. But have I been asking the questions um, to reform or re- like completely shift the capitalist system in the past? Not so much. So that's where I'm like, ooh, how do I, I want to have this conversation and I'm, I'm really interested in what, and, 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 you know, I live in America, so basic income, that's not a thing. <laughs> uh, you know what I mean? So can you explain, can you explain what basic, yeah, start with the, the basics. What, so what is a basic income? Okay, great. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for asking. I want to ask you more about the conversation you've been having around pay equity and um, and and yeah, how we've shifted because yeah, I've shifted yes. as well. So I want to know more mm-hmm. insight. So basic income is where all citizens have the right to uh, a, a base income. So some um, some um, amounts that have been put forward are like forty three thousand Australian dollars, uh, which is livable not not um not rich i guess uh yeah not cashed up but is uh definitely a livable income um sorry i might have that figure wrong someone might want to fact check me on that um there's been lots of different models um, talked about in europe and interestingly india is one of the leading places where um basic income is being discussed in Mm. a scholarly and in um, a community by community activists. And that's a place, India, with 1.4 billion people where you just think, no, there's no possible way this can ever happen. Whereas people have modelled it and said that this is possible. So a basic income means that you have a guaranteed um, income regardless of your circumstances. It is not means tested. That means it's not just for poor people I've just used the inverted commas uh, Mm -hmm. thing uh, because it doesn't designate people as poor it designates everyone as having the right to live a right to an income I personally believe that the right to housing should go with that um, that um, that you know housing is like healthcare. it should just be and it just should be absolutely guaranteed and nobody should be without that so um so a basic income does that for what it means for the arts uh, what it means is that you could take time off from your work at any stage and your basic income would kick in which means that you could spend time being an artist or being a gardener or being a grandparent or being a parent you could you could just you could have that time you don't exist as a worker you exist as a sovereign being creative person. What it means for artists is that you reduce that reliance on, um, on those capitalist funding structures. Right. But also there is just an acceptance in the community that if you want a life of an artist, you've chosen a life of a poor person. And it's such a stigma 
uh, if a child says, I want to be an artist when they grow up, you can just see everyone's eyes going, just prepare to be hungry. And that's not okay. Um, so this is why, you know, one of the reasons why I'm advocating hugely for a basic income, but definitely for it to be trialled in the arts, because I think it is one of those sectors where it could make a massive difference. You don't have to trial it with a lot of people uh, and it could um we can demonstrate how this can actually be done. Uh, at some stage, go and talk to an economist, which I am not, about how a basic income works. The biggest first question is, doesn't it bankrupt the state? How do you afford it? Uh, it's actually much more affordable than a lot of the models that we have already that are um, based on exploiting people. So that, in a nutshell, I'm hoping is basic income. I love I, I uh, my mind boggles, but I'm also loving it. Um, I again live in America, so you said things like he healthcare. You said things like housing rights and dignity. Love it. Mm, mm. Um, it so it sounds like as you were talking, I I, I did one of these <laughs> because that's my thinking um, brain, and I started thinking if if there was a way to model this, it would still be with like it would be an um, what do you call that like an incubator with within still a larger uh, capitalist uh, uh, capitalistic um, ecosystem. So is this another ITAC potential that could happen across continents? You know where how could we figure out um uh yeah the baseline for that base income and figure out how to support the funding for that knowing that how artists work in each of those continents are is different and you know is there is there something that we can mine and, and can we work with somebody who's an economist can we work with somebody who um maybe you know has worked on these sustainable uh, development goals, you know, some, something like that. So it, it feels like there is a, a, a lift to a, a global conversation and not a, a, like a state or a country based or even just one continent based conversation is curious question for me. Um, in terms of pay equity um, advocacy, I, I will say it, it comes and goes. And this time it, it has been really, really challenging in this time, excuse me, not and this time with um you know the economy being really really challenged and there are other kinds of reckonings that are happening it's it's hard to have that conversation um amongst all the different conversations that are ha happening i do want to find ways to pick it back up but in the past we had talked about under the current structure um, you sort of mentioned the person who has a full-time job at a factory and then works, uh, uh, drives Uber five nights, uh, five hours a night. Um, it's a similar kind of, uh, way to create, create opportunities to f get to something that feels like a livable wage by work, teaching artists, working for multiple organizations and depending on what organizations you're working for, you're getting, you're getting paid for the same work in a, a very wide pay rate, uh, pay scale. Um, and some, you know, really float to the top and others don't and, and to, artists have to make their own decisions around that. So the question for, for me, um, in the conversations that we've had over the past was what, what is considered a, a livable wage within our field? Um, the sports, uh, the sports, um, arts and media, um, 
livable wage. This was, I, I believe, like in 2015, 2016, so I don't know what it is currently, was uh, a little over $86,000 US dollars a year. Um, and I know many teaching artists who make a whole lot less than $86,000. And what, you know, what the way that some of the models are created for teaching artists to work within any given institution does not necessarily allow for full-time work. Um, So that's another question around healthcare. And in our society, you basically have to be working 40 hours a week in order to qualify for a possibility (laughs) to have some sort of healthcare. So, and, and there is the affordable health care act but that is also a complicated system unto itself um, and then there's more state-based um, either medicaid or medicare um, that can can come into play as well so it, it really does vary across the entire nation so there's health care benefits and that is also a fraught conversation we were doing some research about trying to better understand what that looks like and can we create some sort of um we are really in super duper early like R and D stages, but a conversation or a question has come up. Like what is a collective impact or collective project that could potentially impact how teaching artists receive benefits is a question. That is all it is. There is no action yet. Um, And then for my institution, we, we sort of said, okay, if that, if $86,000 is the base is the baseline for a livable wage, and we are working within the structures that we, the, the models that we currently have, what could we strive for, for our part-time teaching artists as a, as a potential? And we sort of thought like, if we could try and strive for a fourth of that, that on average, our teaching artist roster, which at the time was close to 60, you know, if we could offer about a fourth of that, of their income to be working for our institution that is something to strive for. Did we reach that? Uh, Unclear. I'd have to look back at the data, but we certainly are not reaching that right now. I can guarantee you, I can say that with definity, but um, I'm, I, I want to get back into that conversation. Uh, There were a lot of uh, measures that we put into place, even as we were having to make really, really hard decisions about what we we wanted to be able to provide for our teaching artists, as well as our full-time staff um, in the, in the height of the crisis, um, uh, at the beginning of the pandemic and throughout the last like 18 months, things are, we are in a better shape for now and, and nothing is guaranteed. So it's, it's a, it's an interesting moment actually and an important moment to come back to that conversation, I would say. Yeah. And you hugely advance that conversation firstly by engaging in it and, and having it, but setting those, um, you know, talking about it in real terms, um, mm-hmm. I, I think is is really huge. And and that is a conversation that we don't have here in Australia. So, you know, when you're saying, look, you're t- I'm talking healthcare and housing rights and things like that. Firstly, firstly I fight alongside you. Um, so there are people at every turn here in Australia. Yes, we have free healthcare, but there are people at every turn looking to destroy it. It is an ongoing fight. So I promise you, we are right beside you. Um, and, and the conversation that you're having about setting those targets and those, I guess, having that meaningful conversation about what it means to be a working artist. Um, I still think that we're really behind that conversation here in mm. Australia. So I'm really interested. Oh, no. I mean, I'm, I'm just having that conversation by myself right now and like a few of my internal co- colleagues. But I want to try and have that conversation more 
Well, what you've raised about ITAC, the space of ITAC, uh, to bring together economists and to bring together, you know, historians and sociologists and artists, I think is really important. And artists need to be need to be centered in the conversation at every single turn. Yes. Uh, even when I go to basic income um, conferences and I ask, well, what about the arts? Everyone says, oh, yes, absolutely. As well, that is um that that is really important so i'm saying why don't we start with the arts yeah why don't, why don't we start yeah. same same with climate justice you know why don't we start with the arts and then work our way right. through the science and i i think that that's a brilliant i was at so uh, um yeah at the top of the pandemic working with creative generation actually we had a video series about and there was a whole campaign about keep making art and a lot, some of the conversations were about this, like how, what can we do to, to shift change, especially because, you know, of, of how the house of cards was so clear. Um, and so I, I would like to have this, continue to have this conversation and, and, you know, you've sparked, you're, you're sparking something and I like that. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm excited about, I'm excited about that conversation. Um, you know, and I, yeah. I, for me, I, I have often for a long time, I would say that I'm not an activist. I don't think that's true anymore. I can't say that anymore, but I'm still, I think sometimes I still struggle to figure out what, what is my development goal <laughs> to focus on. And when you started talking about pay and basic income that I, that rang back up, like, oh, that's, that was something that you were very much focused on. And somehow that might've just gotten dormant for a second, but I'd like to bring that back in. Um, Can I ask you, yes. Courtney, why, yes. why have you not identified as an activist? I'm not putting that on you. Recently, mm -hmm. someone challenged me and said, anyone who identifies as an activist is really not. And so that was a very humbling thing to, for me to hear. Um, so I'm just, I'm just interested. Is it, is it a loaded label? Is it not actually right for what we're doing? Maybe I, I, I don't feel like I, I can. I'm not feeling like I'm not an activist an, anymore. But I think where I tend to focus on the the micro. And I often think of activists as focusing on the macro. And so that, I think that was a distinction and, and I don't know if that's actually true, but I definitely believe myself to be an advocate without a doubt. Um, I'm working on becoming more mindfully an ad advancer. Um, and I, I actually have it right, like written right here. <laughs> um, that I, yeah, you're an advocate, an accomplice and an advancer. Advocate, accomplice, and banner. I yeah. love, um, I love accomplice. I often call uh, people my co-conspirators, and it would mm. be such an honor to be a co-conspirator with you at some stage. Oh, let's do it! I'm super yeah, into it. it. So, Rachel, I'm gonna ask you a question, and then I'll answer it too. Okay. okay. What brings you joy? Working with the with participants in an arts-rich space in ways that open new doors brings me so much joy. But for me personally, every person is different. When that is combined with movement, that equals joy. I'm just an embodied person. Um, I'm a dancer and an aerial artist and things like that. And I find that we have the most breakthroughs to open new doors when we are up and moving, when we're creating beautiful movement together. 
when I'm up on an aerial apparatus trying something new or instructing somebody and they're getting it or they're not getting it and we're actually feeling the most alive that we've ever felt and we leave exhausted and we leave um, refreshed at the same time. So that's what gives me uh, joy is making art but through movement with beautiful, beautiful people. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um. I what brings me joy there are a lot of things that bring me joy and I um something I was thinking about earlier today was um how important uh for me the personal personal joy is that then I can share that joy very widely with many people at once or one other person within my vicinity um so what brings me joy um actually is, is listening to music and uh, dancing like, uh, you know, in my apartment or <laughs> anywhere really on, I'll dance on the street. Um, and, and swimming, swimming brings me a lot of joy. Um, and connecting with people, uh, and ma- and making a thing. And it could, it doesn't have to be art specific. Um, I, I'm a big believer in like community based sports, <laughs> um and just you know just connecting in that way I'm I definitely draw energy from other people so in terms of teaching yeah when things are just like I'm I'm able to show you so much of who I am as an artist and take us through some sort of creative process and seeing the ownership that can happen through uh, me just sort of opening up little opportunities for discovery self-discovery connection that kind of thing that's where you know things get buzzy around the body and 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 that's very exciting and brings me a lot of joy i i love the buzziness of the body but at some stage can we also have a conversation about the intersection of sport community sport and community art because i think they're so similar i think there's so much shared space and so much we can learn yeah, I actually did a lot of sports in, in high school. And then as an adult, I've done and, and I agree. I think there's a lot for me. I'm, I'm a big believer in, in collaboration. I don't I, I I have gotten better at working alone, but I am at my best when I'm working with others. Yeah, mm-hmm. always about the collective. Yeah. So I'm going to I'm going to take us to a sort of winding down moment. Um First, I'm just going to let folks know that um, Teaching Artistry uh, podcast has its own website. You can find us on teachingartistry.org. That's where you can find all of our episodes. Um, This conversation will actually also be an upcoming episode um, in November. Um, So you can follow us on um, or subscribe, sorry, to SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and we're also on Spotify. Um, Or you can follow us on uh, social media. We're on Facebook, we're on Twitter and Instagram, and we are a monthly podcast. Um, so those conversations that I have sometimes more public like this one, or just me in my living room, (laughs) um, talking with one other person or a panel, um, they come out every month. Um, I'm really excited for my audience to, to listen to this conversation, um, Rachel. And so I'm just curious about, um, one, if you have any other thoughts that you want to share as we close out and or um, if there are any takeaways that you're hoping the listeners or the session participants have. Oh, my goodness. I've I've learned so much during this session. So 
thank you so much for having me. As the takeaways is to keep being well to all the artists out there, all the artists, um, all the creators. Uh, we need you. We need you more than ever. So we need you to be well in whatever sense that is, if that means taking time for yourself, if that means um, doing some self-care, if that means activating the collective, if that, if that means being more active, whatever it means, just be well because we so need you and we need you everywhere in every single space. We need you to find the connections between climate, between social, between economic justice and between creative justice. We need to find all those intersections because everything is connected and be everywhere that you can. There's limitations on what we can do as one person, but um, next year I'm hoping to run for parliament because I believe that we need artists in parliament. I believe that we need artists in every single space. So push your way in. There's only one fail and that's the failure not to try. So come with me, fail hard and fail often because GI do it spectacularly well. I'm floored by your drive. Um, and it's not like the ambitious drive that I'm talking about. I'm talking about the the human drive. I, don't, I think that's what I mean. Um, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for all the work that you're doing. Um, I, yes, let's keep talking because I think, um, I think that there's, um, there's movement in our future together. There absolutely is. It's delicious movement. Can't wait. Uh, well, thank you all for joining us, um, both live and, um, later, um, and, and listen again and tell your friends, tell your peeps, tell your colleagues, um, Rachel, any last thoughts? Uh, this has been so fantastic. Uh, everyone should come to Australia and we should all hang out when that is possible. Who knows? Uh, but thank you so much, Courtney. Love your work. You're, you're a total warrior and such admiration of you. So thanks for having me. Thank you. And thank you to um, Creative Generation and WAEAE for having us and, and providing the space for this conversation. Thank you for listening to episode 47 of Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body, Rachel Jacobs, Collectively Moving Toward Justice. Join us next time for a conversation with Ashraf Hasham. This podcast is edited and produced by Ben Weber. Christopher Totten is the director of creative content. John Waldman wrote and performed the theme song. Tim Palin designed the logo. Visit us at www.teachingartistry.org and head to the pod shop at the top of the page for merch. Twitter us at TA underscore artistry. The gram at teaching artistry with CJB. And now on YouTube, check out the Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body channel and watch We Can't Go Back. Like our page on Facebook, listen to us on SoundCloud and Spotify, subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts, and be sure to share this podcast with all the teaching artists in your life. Let's start it up now. Let's start it up now.